Hey friends, you are listening to Real Talk with Rachel, and I'm your host, Rachel Gilbert. Have you ever questioned Christianity? If so, you're not alone. Today, I sat down with a former devout atheist, Jay Warner Wallace, who couldn't imagine believing in the Christian faith until he applied the same step-by-step investigative process he utilized in his work as a homicide detective to the case for Christianity. In light of the 10 common rules of evidence he'd used to solve crimes throughout his career, Wallace realized he could no longer deny the truth of Jesus Christ. And his life was never the same. Now, before I officially bring him on the show and introduce you to him, let's welcome our new listeners. Here on Real Talk with Rachel, you can tune in on Mondays for short talk therapy episodes. Those are always under 20 minutes. And every other Wednesday, we share guest interviews with people I hand select to speak into your life. These episodes are meant to be educational, not a replacement for your therapist. Be sure to stick around until the end of today's show for a short segment where I share counselor-proof strategies to take this Real Talk episode and make it relevant in your everyday life through simple action steps. Well, as I already mentioned, our guest this week is Jay Warner Wallace. He is a Dateline-featured cold case detective author, speaker, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and an adjunct professor of apologetics at Biola University in Southern Evangelical Seminary. Please help me welcome Jay Warner to the show. Well, hello, Jay Warner. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be with you. Yes, I am excited to chat with you. I hate the phrase, pick your brain, but I'm excited to pick your brain. My husband and I, like, we get these messages all the time of, hey, can I come pick your brain? And we're like, but then I have no brains left. So, but we're about to pick yours. So sorry about that. Well, and, yeah, and we, I've got a good friend, uh, Greg Kolkel. He always gets upset when anyone says they're going to pick your brain because he's, he's like, you know, you're, you're actually picking my mind, not my brain. Oh. Because, you know, you, so I'm like, okay. Yes, that's technically true. But I, that expression, though, is so common, right? Because it it's is. true. Or it, what we're really doing is is any of this content creation is just really trying to pass on something that you think was of value. Otherwise, why would you be talking about it? So, so yeah, I hope that what we're going to talk about will be valuable to somebody who's listening. For yes, sure. it will. Hey, I already just learned something. Now I can say, well, you can pick my mind. But yes, right? <laughs> I, I know, will. Right? I'm totally going to use that. I love it. Okay, good. Yes. Good, good. Okay, I like to ask my guests what is maybe a random fact about you I wouldn't have just read in your professional bio. Oh boy. Uh, well, I mean, uh, we run a lot. My wife and I have, she's a runner when I first met her 45 years ago, and she still is. So we run a lot. And so most of my, but if you do my social media accounts like Instagram, you're probably seeing those. Because what else do you do if you're running every day? You're pretty much posting about where you're running. But yeah, that's probably the, what I spend most of my time doing if I'm not writing. I'm probably, probably yeah. suffering on some trail for, for Susie. Yes. <laughs> you Are y'all trail runners or road runners or no, both? No, are you kidding me? We're barely even, I, I, I don't think you, you could probably only call it running by definition. Mm-hmm. So in other words, if you took a, a video of us with your phone and then you sped it up three times, it would start to look like running. Yeah. But as it is, we call it running because it makes us feel better. Okay, I can relate because that's how I am. And my husband and I both like definitely not winning any races, but 
I think I call it a shuffle, you know, no, no, what it's, it is. It's very true. Yeah. I used to call it sloughing. We were, we're sloughers because it's it's not even shuffling. It doesn't mean rate that high, but yeah. uh, but it is fun. And, and it is the kind of thing that, you know, if we're running a race, then you pick it up for that yeah. one event, you know, but most of the time it's easy. It's just a great opportunity for us just to hang out and talk, yeah. you know, and so much time is spent together on trails that you're either talking or if we get separated, we're listening to podcasts or, you know, that kind of thing. So, so it's, just, it's been really healthy for us as a couple, but so actually kind of about why we keep doing it. Yeah. That's my husband and I too. We love to run, hike, all the things. In fact, I know I, I asked you, Rain, fun fact, but uh, I, when my book launched six months ago, I wanted to do something fun just to kind of celebrate. And my husband and I went to Disney and ran the Disney half the half marathon, the Disney princess one. And it was fun. We were matching shirts and goofed off along the way. And it was a lot of fun. So is that the one here in California or was that in Florida? It was in Florida. Yeah. In Florida. Yeah. yeah. Very, very cool. No, we've, we just did um, a, a hellacious trail straight up and straight down run uh, oh. last weekend for Susie's birthday. So, so I know what that is to, that's fun though to do that. Yeah. Right. Cause I, I think in the end, um, it, it, those events of, of all the kinds of events you could have, those seem like healthy, productive, positive events. Exactly. So yeah, we enjoy them. Yes. My husband has recently gotten into adventure racing that I'm not joining with him. I don't know if you might know much about that, but anyhow. All right. Yeah, so and that's not my thing either. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. I could talk to you for, for days about that, but I'm sure the listeners are like, okay, Rachel, are we really, is this an episode about running? No, it's not. Um, in case right. you're running. Um, but another, I mean, a couple of fun facts I found about you. So, you know, I guess I was gonna say a little bit fun is one, I saw that you were, you played a small role in God's Not Dead too. Yes, I did. I was asked by the, um, I started because we were just kind of helping out the, the screenwriters after yeah. God's Not Dead 1. They wanted to turn a corner and turn it toward, because God's Not Dead 1 is really just about, does God exist? And then they wanted to turn it toward Christianity. So they they met me at the Evangelical Theological Society's annual meetings, and we sat down and kind of talked about how could you make this case? And then when it came time to shoot the movie, they're like, you know what, We can you just come and do it? Because, because yeah. they didn't want to try to rebuild it from scratch. So so they let me come in and just make the case in like six minutes on one scene. Yeah. So it was fun. It was yeah. a lot of fun. That's cool. That's cool. I'll have to check it out. Uh, well, I have watched the movie, but now that I would be looking for you, you know, I'm like, it's been a while since well, I've if, seen it. If, <laughs> if, if you watch the movie and you did, nothing about it sticks out in your memory, I think I probably failed. Now oh. I feel bad. I shouldn't <laughs> even said you saw it because now I'm thinking, wow, that must have been that lame. So no, lame you didn't even remember it. No, if you talk to my husband, I can't tell you about a movie I watched last week and that's not even a lie. He, it kind of makes him a little bit like this is a little point of tension in our marriage. He'll be like, oh yeah, let's watch so-and-so. And I'm like, okay. And we start watching it. I'm like, oh, I've seen this. He's like, how, he doesn't, he can't wrap his brain around how I do that. So yeah, it's not just yeah, this. I'm, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think that sometimes if it's not your focus, and movies aren't my focus, I mean, uh -huh. I watch them occasionally, then yeah, you're yeah. right. I don't, I don't often remember them. So. Yeah. Um, okay. And then you also were a homicide, homicide, homicide detective. Tell us about that. Well, yeah, that's really most of my, my work has yeah. always been in that area. I, I think I jumped into it, um, I was probably maybe 10 years, eight years on the job when I got transferred into robbery homicide. So it was relatively early, but I, I came on the job a little bit later. Um, so I was in my 30s 
you know, we would work fresh homicides as a team, which means you can, if you have a five man team, you're going to get every fifth homicide. But then we started um, looking at cold cases, which are just the unsolved murders. You don't have uh, cold um, cases that are anything other than murder because everything else closes by statute, but homicides don't close. They stay open until they're solved. So we had a bunch of these and I had a Sergeant who was ambitious. Uh, and one year he said, Hey, let's, let's try to assign some of these cases to the team and we'll just assign them as one case each as a collateral duty. And if you have this as a collateral duty, you're never going to do it because you have fresh cases that are having like deadlines and time constraints. And this case has been open for 30 years. Am I really going to go back and, and make another burden for myself? Most people don't. And then I got injured on the job. So I had some time from free time for about, I think three or four months. So I picked up a cold case and we solved it. And that started a whole run where we formed a team and then we did a bunch of these. And because we're right down the street line, uh, Universal Studios is right up the road. We ended up doing all of them on Dateline. So that ended up being a, kind of what launched us in this field um, of Dateline cases uh, to the point where there was nobody. I mean, our, our agency had more cases on Dateline than anybody else in the country. And it was probably just because we were down the road. You know, we happened to be local and we gave them complete access. So because it, 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 the great thing about cold cases is that the guy you're working doesn't know you're coming up on him until you first knock on his door. For three decades, he thought he got away with it. Wow. And he doesn't need to know you're coming after him until you have all your ducks in a row. And that first time I'm knocking on the door, that's probably a search warrant. I'm already at the point where I'm ready to do the search warrant and probably going to go to jail in the next week, maybe that day. So it, so you, because we have that kind of um, confidence in what we're doing there and we have that kind of um, timing, uh, Dateline loves those cases and they are with us from the point we're knocking on the door all the way through the trial. They also like that. They would rather have a case that they're in with you from the beginning than a case that they're reporting on afterwards. And that's probably why we ended up on Dateline so often. Wow. Okay. This is totally fascinating. So would, would we be able to find you on, like, were you talking on Dateline and things yeah, like that? No, I, I've been on Dateline more than anybody else in the country. So wow. if you look, just go to our, just type in Jay Warner Wallace Dateline, you'll see our webpage where I've, they don't allow me to put them on YouTube. So I have them on a private server. Okay. Um, so that people can watch them if they want to. Yeah. I've written about a bunch of these, you know, where I've changed the details because I'm trying to protect people who are. Yeah. Most of my books include stories from those cases. Yeah. Just modify them in some ways to get to privatize them in some way, which is kind of silly. You'd think, right. Cause they're on dayline, but one of these, you know, these get over, I'm in California and in you know, ninth circuit, that's, this is where things get overturned. So I'm always sensitive to the idea that we might be retrying a case. Um, so I don't want to do anything that's too specific yeah. that I'm about to deal with later. Yeah. Yeah. You know? No, that mm -hmm. makes sense. Okay. So then you wrote a book called cold case Christianity and the first yep. version of it came out how long ago? 10 years, 10, 10 years, years this year, 2013. Okay. And we did that just because that was the, it just described the journey that I went through to get in yeah. to the Christian worldview. Like, well, what did I have to, that, it wasn't somebody who was raised in the church. I was a pretty committed atheist at 35 when I first started looking at this evidence uh, for Christianity. And it was really by just testing the gospels as eyewitness accounts that I became convinced that they were telling us something true. And uh, that was the first step, right? Because for me, there's no way I could give my life to something that, that I didn't know was objectively true. 
Yeah. Um, not, not just a matter of subjective opinion. And, and what I discovered is that pretty much everyone is an evidentialist. What I mean is if I said, well, why is, are you a Christian? Most people would answer with some experience they've had personally that demonstrated for them that God exists and that Christianity is true. That's the, that's really the most popular answer is I was raised in the church. But, but aside from that answer, uh, a lot of people will point to some experience they've had and they see it as evidential. Like this was evidence for me that Christianity was true. But what I've discovered is that almost all of that is highly subjective. And my Mormon family, I've got six brothers and sisters, my dad's second marriage. He's not a believer. He's an atheist, but his second wife is a Mormon. And I've got six brothers and sisters raised LDS. And they will tell you that they know Mormonism is true based on an experience. Hmm. So I knew that there had to be something more than just your experiences because they clearly think they had an experience. And that's, I don't think that's true. I know that's not true evidentially. So I've always been really careful and guarded. Everyone's got a story. And if you're a cop, you don't trust any of them. So I didn't even trust my own experiences. So I wanted to know, is this objectively true? And that's really how, so this book really traces the evidence that I looked at as a non-believer to, and and I didn't trust people's opinions. Yeah. I don't even know when I first did this, if Lee Strobel, who's a good friend of mine now wrote the foreword to this book, I don't even know if uh, Lee's book was written yet. Yeah. But if it had been, I would not have been interested in reading it because that's just the expert opinion of people. Show me the evidence of opinion. That's what I would have said. Because everyone's got an expert. The defense team has got great experts. They come in and they'll testify that the evidence that we're presenting means exactly the opposite of what our experts say. So experts are constantly disagreeing. I just didn't trust any of them. So I just needed to know what is the evidence how do I assemble it? How do I test the gospels? And once I did that, I was in. And so that's what Cold Case describes is that journey. Yeah. Well, and why I appreciate this is because I am one of those people you just described, grew up in church. And up until this point of my life, I feel like most of what I believe about Christianity is experiential. Like, you know, just straight up, like right. that's what it is. And I've been challenged lately because I've been met with so many people who either are walking away from faith or just straight up are not interested, all these things. And they're asking questions that honestly I can't answer, you know, and it makes me go, Ooh, I need to have more than just experience here. You know, it's challenging me to go, wait, why do I believe what I believe? And I need to, yeah, I need to dig into this a little bit. And so can you share with us? I'm very curious then how you pivoted from being an atheist at 35 to wanting to do the research, like even even giving it the time of day to do this research and to investigate. Well, I, a lot of it was just pride. Um, you know, Susie was somebody who thought, well, should we raise our kids with some understanding of right and wrong? And where do we get that from? And I was more than happy to do it the way that my mom did it. Just, just you know, you learn it from your, your family. You, you, you know what? You don't need to go to church to learn that. But we did have our kids at the time in a preschool really to get them ready for school, thinking that we needed to do that, which probably we didn't even need to do that. But we had them and they happened to be in a, in a Baptist preschool, I think it was a Baptist preschool. And so we had some connection. And so she said, should we start going to church? And I thought, not really, I didn't want to. And we moved from that neighborhood anyway. So we were here in this neighborhood about three years before we were ever came up again, or we started to talk about it seriously. And I avoided it. You know, I thought, well, if you want to go, like my dad will go as an atheist. I was a pastor for years. He would come to our church 
and he's not a believer. Sing the songs, thinks it's a useful delusion, thinks it's, it's a, you know, if it works for you, great. His family is all written, raised LDS that works for them. Don't mess with them. They won't mess with you. He thinks it's all a lie anyway. So I was willing to go the same way he would have gone. And I postponed it, you know, and kind of tried to find ways out of it. But eventually I went, no big deal. Like it'd be the same as if, as if Susie had asked me, Hey, would you go to this Colombian restaurant? And I don't like Colombian food. I actually love Colombian food, but if I didn't, I would, I would go just because I want to make her happy. And I figured how long is it going to take, you know, an hour. Okay, great. If I do that once in a while, it'd be fine. But when I get there, this pastor is clever. You know, he's the guy who is used to having unbelievers in his congregation. And he said that Jesus was the smartest man who ever lived. And that little statement was enough to provoke me from a pride perspective to see what was so smart about Jesus. Now, we didn't own a Bible, but I went out and bought one, and it was just a, a pew Bible. I think I spent 6 or six or $7 on it, and I just tore it up. I mean, I just read through the Gospels, trying, to, and I, I was right away struck by the fact that they were not perfectly aligned, which I never see perfect alignment between eyewitnesses in any case. And it could happen an hour ago. If I get called out to the scene, I guarantee you. The only thing that detectives usually ask of dispatchers when we get dispatched to a homicide is to have the witnesses separated. Like have the patrol officers who are on scene separate the eyewitnesses. Because if you don't do that, they talk to each other. And then you get one story repeated over and over and over again. And what you want is the messy, apparently contradictory stuff. Because that's where you're going to find truth. So when I saw these stories were not perfectly aligned in the Gospels, I was like, oh, okay, well, that's that's a good sign. And I thought, well, how do I test these? And we have a template that we use. Like, I don't trust eyewitnesses, but eyewitnesses are important, and you have to, to test eyewitnesses. Now, once you test them, if they pass the criteria that judges instruct juries about all the time, and they are the instructions are in California in our jury instructions. They're in every state. So you just follow those instructions. Now, if jurors follow those instructions and they they determine that a witness is reliable, they cannot just arbitrarily kick the testimony to the curb. They have to have a reason. And the reason can't be, well, I don't like the way this guy looks. Or I don't like the way this guy sounds. There's criteria for testing eyewitnesses. So that's what I applied to the Gospels. That's what cold case Christianity really illustrates is like, what are the four criteria we use to determine eyewitness reliability? And if we applied that to the Gospel authors, would they pass? Believe it or not, Christianity is true. Whether you like it or not, it's true. Whether you want it to be true or not, it's true. And those Gospels record something remarkable that happened in the first century, that if you test them the way you would test any other eyewitness, now, you could still argue, and I did for a season, that, yeah, they might be reliable in some aspects, but they can't be reliable in everything they teach, because they make claims that Jesus walked on People don't do that. So I, I was still resisting the supernatural elements in the Gospels because I was a very committed philosophical naturalist. If you couldn't explain it with space-time, matter, physics, and chemistry, it didn't happen. So I thought, there, for, it's been a season at least, thinking, okay, the Gospels are describing some things accurately and some things not, are not accurate. I got to figure out which is which. Well, a lot of that was based on my presuppositional bias. And how I kind of overcame that is simultaneous to doing this. I was looking at the evidence for God because if there's no God, there's no Christian God. 
But I wrote about that in a book called God's Crime Scene. But I was doing that investigation simultaneously to this. And, and for me, it was like, do I have good reasons to believe there are actually attributes of the universe that can only be explained by the existence of God? And so I realized at some point that God's existence is reasonable. And if that's the case, the miracle that's the most spectacular in Scripture is not in the New Testament. It's Genesis 1, everything from nothing. This is what the standard cosmological model still affirms. That the atheist scientists still believe that the universe came into existence from nothing. And if that's the case, we're looking for something outside of space, time, and matter as the cause of space, time, and matter. So you're already stepping outside of naturalism. So I just started to hold the miracles with a more of an open hand that I was willing to, to, to just evaluate those. If there's a God who could create everything from nothing, why wouldn't he be able to walk on water? Those are small potato miracles. And I just knew that I had to be a little more reasonable about how I assessed those. So I, I do think, for example, and I wrote about this in a book called Person of Interest, that there's no way you can explain the impact of Jesus on culture if he's something other than who he claimed to be. So I just think there's good reasons to believe that this is true. And once I was in that position, you're, you're really kind of stuck because you know this is true. Now you got to make a decision. Do you want to live your life in accordance with what you know to be true? Or do you want to kind of continue to believe it's not for convenience sake? And I would much rather, you know, because this, this is not a convenient worldview, right? Especially right now in culture. If you hold as a Christian, and you know this because you have a teenager, that if you have a teenager right now, this is not going to be the most popular worldview to hold because this is the worldview that unless you distort it, is making claims about identity, about sexual relationships, about the sanctity of life. These are claims that are not popular in culture. And it used to be that people would say, well, I don't like the Christians much. I do like the Christ guy, but I don't like the Christians. Well, that's only because they don't know what Jesus taught. Once they discover what Jesus taught, they don't like him either. So we have to make a decision. There's no reason to, to step into this very inconvenient, um, difficult worldview if it's not evidentially true. On the other hand, if it is evidentially true, then we have to deny truth in order to, to reject it. And so I just needed to know, is it true? And that's why I think that that's still a question that's on the table, even though I'm an old guy. And that question may have been more common for people born in my generation. I think the questions are changing for younger people. It's not just, is it true? It's, is it good? It's the trueness of Christianity and the goodness of Christianity. But I'll tell you, uh, something really, how good could it be if it's not true? I think this is a, a, a kind of a prerequisite for goodness is that it has to be true. So in the end, I think um, we want to make the case for both the trueness of this and the goodness of it. That's what I tried to write two different books on that cold case. Christianity is about the trueness of it. The most foundational issue, whereas person of interest is about the goodness of it. Mm. Oh my goodness. All right. I could, eat all this up for so long. You're so right about the, it's not convenient to believe this. And I think we've all had moments where it's like, it would be much easier if I just did not. <laughs> this wasn't the path I was taking. I know even for me, you know, the book I just released earlier this year was on body image. And I brought together my therapeutic uh, side of things and married it with biblical teachings. And Jesus was all throughout the book. And I remember as they were scheduling interviews for me and things, you know, they were, there were some that said, we can bring you on if you leave the Jesus out. You know, if you'll leave the Bible part out, we right. love what you're doing over here with therapy and every in body image, but we need to leave that side out. And in fact, even on Instagram, we had one of my reels that I was talking, I said the name Jesus in it and I got a 
a notification from Instagram and Facebook that they had to take that down because it violated community standards and guidelines. Um, it was because it was wow. the name of Jesus was in it. And so, yeah, that, that opposition is rising. And so I love how you challenge us in this to just lean into like, and like I said, just digging into, okay, the truth here. And so you even say, um, you encourage people even in this book to learn to be detectives. What are some tips that I, if I can approach this, even me and the listeners of how can we learn to be detectives when it comes to the truth about Christianity and what we're, what we're talking about here? Well, we try to do this in the first half of the book where we talk about 10 aspects of being a detective, like 10 attributes, 10 characteristics, 10 tools for your call out bag that you need if you want to be a detective. But I'll just keep it. It's really simple. I think that part of the problem is, is that people don't even know what qualifies or what counts as evidence. Now, I wrote a book about the nature of faith and why we use that word and what that really means and what it, how it is that Jesus in the New Testament assessed, claim, made claims. This is called forensic faith. But this book... Really, if all you got out of it was what are the categories, the broad categories of evidence, because what people will say is you have no hard evidence for Christianity. And that's true because there's no such category as hard evidence. There's no hard evidence for anything because that's not a category. There's only two categories of evidence, direct evidence and indirect evidence. Now, direct evidence is eyewitness accounts. Now, anything that has an eye. And it can then report what it saw. That is an eyewitness. So that means that your your smartphone now with this high def video we have, that is also direct evidence. So video and eyewitness accounts are direct evidence. Everything else falls in the second category, which is indirect evidence. That means that the DNA evidence that's indirect. And people online will still argue with me about this. They don't know the categories. No, it's, it's again, because you're thinking, well, direct is better than indirect, right? Well, fingerprint evidence is indirect evidence, uh, you know, ballistic evidence, uh, blood spatter, uh, DNA. If it's not an eyewitness, it's indirect evidence. And there's another name for indirect evidence. It's called circumstantial evidence. And and people will always say, well, that's just junk because you hear on media all the time. It's just a circumstantial case. It's purely circumstantial as if to say, well, it's not really good. But judges instruct jurors. It's in the California jury instructions that jurors are to embrace uh, direct evidence with the exact same meritorious value that they embrace indirect evidence. These two things are not different in terms of quality. They're to be given the exact same level of consideration. we got to stop thinking of them as, di as different. Because we're going to build a case, and that means then that everything you find in the crime scene has the potential to be evidence. Every little thing, not just everything you find in the crime scene, but what you could have found in the crime scene but was missing. That's also evidence. What did he say? That's evidence. What did he fail to say? That's evidence. What did he do? That's evidence. What did he fail to do? That's evidence. You see, it's a yin and yang. Everything has the potential for evidence. And that what that means is that when I'm trying to prove a case from the past— I can look at a lot more than you think to make that case. I can look in places where you might have thought, well, that's not evidential. Oh, no, of course it is. Everything has the potential to be evidential in a cumulative circumstantial case. And that's what we're building here. All my cases are entirely circumstantial, cumulative cases. I've never lost a case. By the way, they're, they're that way because if they were cases that had eyewitnesses back in 1970, it would have got solved in 1970. It didn't get solved in 1970 because there wasn't an eyewitness. Then it comes to me years later, I've got a case without eyewitness. I mean, I'm going to have to make the case without direct evidence. Okay, we make them. 
and we win them because and, and afterwards people confess once they get convicted. So we know we got the right guy. So it's it's clear that you can make a case with nothing but uh, indirect evidence. And that's why I want to make that point first, because what it comes down to, as you know, expectations determine level of satisfaction. They determine outcomes. So if I think I've got someone says that's a five star restaurant and I go there and it's actually a pretty good restaurant, but it's like a three and a half. Now I'm disappointed because my expectation was a five. Well, dude, it's not a bad restaurant. You actually like it. It's because of your expectation was unreasonable. Well, that same is true for evidence, right? We have this unreasonable expectation of evidence, and then we wonder why we're not satisfied with whatever we got. It's because we don't realize what we use in trials to make cases every day. It might not seem like much. I call it death by a thousand paper cuts because those paper cuts feel like they're not much. And so that's one of the few things we're going to talk about. You know, we've got 10, 10 principles like this that we're talking about in the book. But we think when we're done, we've kind of made the case more accessible before we even start making a case because we've illustrated the rules of evidence that are used when making a case. Wow. Okay. So tell me this, uh, what does Jesus think about this evidence thing and looking at the evidential faith versus blind faith? Well, there was no more evidential person on planet earth than Jesus. I mean, he's, he uses both forms of evidence. He'll say that, that, that my father testifies of me, John, the Baptist testifies talking about direct evidence. And he also says, if you don't believe what I'm telling you, you can at least believe on the evidence of the miracles I've worked in front of you. This isn't John gospel of John. He points often to the miracles. Well, the miracles would be the indirect evidence. Remember direct evidence is only an eyewitness. Everything else is indirect. So when he's pointing to miracles, that's indirect evidence. He's an evidentialist. Faith is not blind. Faith is not, you might, well, how could, well, what about Thomas? Thomas comes up and he he has to see the wounds in Jesus' body, but then he tells Thomas, hey, blessed are those who didn't see this yet believe. Well, on the basis of what? Read, read the next line. It's because they're going to believe, Thomas, on the basis of your eyewitness testimony. Who is it, by as a matter of fact, who gets to be an apostle? Eyewitnesses, direct evidence. Jesus believes in direct evidence because he even Peter picks uh, Matthias right after Judas is is uh, hangs himself. He he has to find a replacement. It's in Acts chapter one. He's in the upper room, 120 so people there gathered. Peter says we need somebody who knew Jesus, who saw Jesus from the baptism to the resurrection. That's an eyewitness. So he's looking for direct evidence, and and you see this. He spends it says in Acts chapter one also that he spends forty days with the disciples after the resurrection, giving them many convincing proofs. In the Greek, that's the word that we use for evidence. What evidence does he need to give them? He's been risen from the grave. Isn't that enough? Nope. Forty days more, giving them evidence to prepare them for what they're about to do in the book of Acts. As a matter of fact, when John the Baptist is having doubts and he sends his believers to Jesus, Jesus has some choices. John's disciples come and they say, you know, John sent us. He wants to know, are you the one? I think Jesus could have responded in a way that's non-evidential. He could have said, really? Dude's my cousin. He jumped in the womb when we first met. He baptized me. He saw the Spirit of God descend on me. He gave me most of his disciples. And he said, there he goes, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. This dude now has got some problems. He's not sure if I'm the one, really. You tell him to suck it up and like pray about this. No, he doesn't do that. He does three miracles in front of John's disciples, and he tells John's disciples, go back and tell John what you just saw. The blind have, the blind have sight, the lame are walking. I mean, he's, he's doing what that's indirect evidence. He is an evidentialist 
first and foremost, the people who have written scripture in the New Testament are people who saw with their own eyes the risen Christ. That's every single letter in the New Testament. If you aren't somebody who saw, Barnabas wrote a letter, it's not in the New Testament. Clement wrote a beautiful letter as a disciple of Paul called First Clement. The early church used that letter, not in the New Testament. Why? Not an eyewitness. That's the regard that Jesus and the New Testament authors had for eyewitnesses. And when someone testifies, I say this all the time, my testimony does not matter and neither does yours. What matters is, is this true? And I don't usually share my testimony because who cares? The question is, what's the evidence for this? Now, you will see people give their testimony, quote unquote, in the New Testament in the book of Acts, but their testimony isn't, let me tell you how Jesus changed my life. Their testimony is, let me tell you when I saw the risen Christ. That's different. That's eyewitness testimony to the risen Jesus. We can't make that kind of testimony, but we could make the case from the eyewitness testimony of the first century. Because by the way, your testimony involving your experience is the same thing that Buddhists will give, Muslims will give, Mormons will give, Jehovah's Witnesses will give. You don't think that that stuff is true. We can do better. And so we have to be able to make the case evidentially because that's the way Jesus made the case. That's the way his followers made the case in the book of Acts. That's the way the canon was assembled on the basis of eyewitnesses who wrote letters. Even, Even Mark. Papias says that Mark is writing for Peter. Peter is preaching in Rome. An early church father, Papias, says that Mark is sitting at his feet and assembling that. That's why one of the chapters in our book, Cold Case Christianity, makes the case for Peter's influence on Mark, that that's actually Peter's eyewitness account. And Luke, although he's not an eyewitness in in the Gospel of Luke, he was an eyewitness in the book of Acts. And that's where he met the people who were eyewitnesses of Jesus. And he writes... He says in the first chapter, I'm writing this on the basis of what I learned from the eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So he's basically like an investigator who's writing out the eyewitness account. So the question is, if it's in the New Testament, it's because an eyewitness touched it. That's the value that Jesus had in evidence. So I think that that's why we have to kind of shift our thinking on this. And that's why, as an investigator, I was impressed. Yeah. This can't be said of other scriptures. You know, when I was in high school, I had a sociology teacher who was a Baha'i, and he loved Baha'u'llah's writings. And so he gave me the scriptures for Baha'i faith, which are all the handwritten. They were originally written in the blood of Baha'u'llah when he was in custody. Amazing proverbial claims, but they're not claims about events that occurred in history. They're just truisms about humans and about the good life, which are great. That's not the New Testament. The New Testament is a claim about something that happened in the first century. Yeah. That's the kind of claim we could test. Yeah. Okay. So now walk us through whenever you did your investigation, you came to a conclusion, okay, this is this is truth. What did that look like for you? Did you have that experiential? Did it change your life? Did your, I know you were married. I mean, you'd been married and now all of a sudden you're going, hey, I believe this is true. What about your wife? What did that look like for you? Well, I think she was much more open to it than I was, um, less skeptical than I was just by nature. That's who she is. And so I, I think that she was ready to kind of make a step based on my investigation. And so for me, I don't trust my experiences because I don't trust anyone's experiences, if I'm honest with you. Yeah. That distrust is a helpful tool for police officers, for detectives, because if you trust people, you know, one goes to jail. But if you think everyone's a liar, eventually someone might go to jail. 
So you kind of start off in that position. So, so for me, have things changed? Yeah. I think Susie would have said watching us go through that. We were together 18 years before either one of us became a Christian. I think if you'd have watched our transition or my transition, she thought of it as nothing less than, than miraculous. I didn't, I, from the inside out, it was hard to notice your values change, your priorities change, your devotion changes, your objects of worship change. That all happened for me. But I'm somebody, and we're all wired differently. I'm somebody who's very careful on on the emotional side of it because I've seen that lead to bad in, in my criminal work. It, that's what usually what's behind everything, right? So people don't think themselves through. It's mostly usually emotional. So I'm very skeptical of my own emotional experiences. I test everything. So I would say that I'm more reserved that way. Yeah. So for example, it's harder for me, just to be honest, to to go into a church and let go enough to worship in a way that probably the person next to me is. Yeah. I'm looking at it and thinking to myself, why are we doing this? This feels manipulative. This feels like, you know, I, I'm always seeing the dark side, yeah. the glass half empty. And I got to let go of that. I mean, that's, that's, that's actually a character flaw that I need to work on. Right. But, but a lot of it, that is kind of what, if you look for evil around every corner, you are likely to catch it in your cases, but just hard to let go of that perspective uh, in your personal life. So I, I have been somebody, I think is probably more reserved in that way. Yeah. And the expressions of my faith. Mm-hmm. But I think this, if you ask Susie, she would probably say, yeah, I, that she saw, she's said that in the past, that she thought it was miraculous, the transition. I, I personally, you know, the arrogant Jim says, well, you weren't that bad before, was I? <laughs> but I guess I was. Yeah. So, so it's, you know, it's, it's obvious that now the people around me at work saw it immediately mm-hmm. and started trying to ask the question, what's, what's going on with you? Like what's changing here? But sometimes too, like if you're looking back at your own testimony 25 years later, it's hard to remember. Yeah you know, where you were before. So I think that for me, this is an act of not just intellectual assent. That's not enough. Yeah. You have to surrender your will Yeah. and trust Christ to do. And so for me, once you, if you examine what the gospels say about Jesus, you'll determine they're true, but that only gives you belief that if you want belief in, you have to examine what the new Testament says about you. Yeah. And I never would have done the second part. Yeah. If I hadn't first done the first part. Yeah. So once I trusted it for Jesus, I started to trust what Paul was saying in Romans. Yeah. About our fallen nature. And I realized, yeah, he's talking about me. Then you start to feel like everything is talking about you. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, that's because you trust it now. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I think we want our young people to trust it enough to to allow their humility. It's like that we talk about this all the time, right? I just wrote another book that comes out next year that really talks about 15 attributes of human nature and how they're described on the pages of scripture. And we know from the sociological studies, the psychological counseling studies, that there's one amazing, amazing super secret sauce that, that contributes to human flourishing more than any other attribute of human nature. It's almost surprising. Only the work's been done in this movie in the last three decades. I collected every one of these studies. And from the secular perspective, they're trying to like, wow, this is, I think they found it shocking that if you want higher grades, higher GPA, you want higher education levels, you want more income, you want better mental health, better physical health, you want more longevity in your life, you want better, deeper relationships, you want to be a better employee, a better employer, you want to actually be able to discern truth from error at a higher level, one attribute enables and unlocks all of these aspects of human flourishing. And it is this weird thing that who would guess it's humility. Mm. 
that one attribute changes everything from your marriage to your job, to your school, to, for young people, for old people, it changes everything. Of course, it's all over the pages of scripture because the Bible describes everything the way it really is, including human nature. And if you were aiming and throwing that dart at what you hope is human flourishing, that bullseye you're going to hit, whether you know it or not, is called the Christian worldview every time because it describes the very attributes we need to adopt in order to flourish and thrive. And so what's fascinating to me is that that humility is at the core of it. And of course, it's, it's at the core because the problem behind every act of evil I've ever investigated is pride and the humility and, and the antidote for pride is humility. So, but the problem with that, of course, is that it means that the first step into this worldview, as you know, is an act of submission, an act of humility. And if you are not willing to take that first step, that step of humility to bend your knee, to admit that there is a God and you're not him, then this doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. And so a lot of the times I think what we do when we make the case like this, especially for young people, is we're simply trying to knock down the wall that people build between themselves and the gospel, a wall that has to come down before you're ever willing to bend your knee. Yeah. So that's why I think the trueness of Christianity has to be, that case still needs to be made yeah. so that we can recognize that the goodness that follows and human flourishing is a big deal. And if you want to flourish in all those areas I just mentioned, you'd have to adopt the one thing that Christianity st stands on and has been standing on for 2000 years, 2000 years before any modern sociologist ever did any research. We've already known that this is the, the key to human flourishing. And it's, it's all over the pages of the New Testament. Yes. All right. Yeah. And I, I want to just circle back around and just say thank you for sharing what you did about how that looked different for you when, when I asked you about, did you have the experiential? And you're, you're like, honestly, I'm not really an emotional guy. Like, you know, just but I think that's good for people to hear because I think that sometimes when people walk into church, for example, if they can't relate to that side, they feel like I don't belong here, like that, that there, there's something wrong with them that I, I don't know. I've just had these conversations with people and I think it's beautiful how the way you're wired and the strengths that you have is your form of worship. Like you being a detective and you being like you having these hard conversations and you, and I, and not even just hard conversations, but like real, uh, you know, good and, and pushing into the facts and, and encouraging us to lean into this. Like, I actually think that's, that's really neat. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> well, otherwise, what does Jesus mean when he says we're to love God with all of our heart, yeah. with all of our soul, with all of our mind? Yeah. What, 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 and it turns out the early history of the church was a group of, of people, Augustine, um, Aquinas, I mean, people who thought deeply, good thinkers, Yep. who thought deeply about this worldview. And I think we just moved away from that. We are now so, um, again, it's to think deeply about something that resides outside of ourselves is probably not popular in a culture which is so self-focused. Yeah. So because we think all truth is found internally, that doesn't take much. By the way, that is largely driven by our laziness because, boy, how hard is it to determine truth? If it's all just discovered internally, it's much harder to find truth if I have to go out and seek it. If I can just say, well, in my view, it's this, that's anyone can do that right now without any effort. So I think that's part of the problem. We have to help people to see that, yeah, truth is out there. It's available, but it does require some work. And by the way, you're already spending time doing something. I know young people right now know more about what the best lineup is on Hulu and Netflix and 
they were spending their time invested in something. The question now becomes, well, what are we invested in? And if you want to know what you really worship, what you really value, show me your calendar. Yeah. Show me your schedule and I'll tell you what you love. Yeah. So in the end, we have to say, well, if we really love this, you're geeked out on it. One thing that changed for me is I used to be a complete home improvement nut job. I mean, every weekend it was just in home improvements. And all of that stopped the minute I became a Christian because I realized that doesn't really even matter. Yeah. So I need to invest in this other thing, which is, you know, study and teaching and talking about who God is. Uh, that becomes your focus because your your objects of worship change. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, important for all young people too. Yeah, yeah. You know, before we, um, speaking of young people, before you and I hit record on this, I was telling you, our 16-year-old is real big into speech and debate, and she is she's a debater. She is a, she's, yeah, she sounds very wired like you in, in this way. And about a year ago, she'd come to me and she said, and her and I have talked publicly about this, but she said, um, you know, if I ever had a different view than you and dad when it comes to Christianity and politics, like, how would you feel about that? And I said, you know what, you are, you know, let's discuss it. Absolutely. And I said, but my, my biggest request to you is I want you to do your research, like do your research, do, like come back to me with like, read the books, like get, dig in. And, and in fact, I sent her to your website and she's been, even recently she came and she's like, mom, I read this article. And actually now, now I'm actually kind of thinking this. And, and that's the thing I'm trying to encourage in her is exactly like you said, cause that's my concern for the younger generation, especially, I mean, all of us are inundated with social media and all the things, but it's almost like they're coming to their conclusions in a lazy way because they saw an influencer that they love post a video about, oh, this is the, this is the truth over here. And all of a sudden in a one minute clip, they're convinced of something. And that's what I told her. I said, if you want to pivot, great, but I want you to bring your evidence to me. (laughs) Well, and you know what's good about that is my sons, when they went through school uh, afterwards, they go through college, you know, they got their master, one got a master's degree in, in, in theology and, and a bachelor's in psychology. The other is a doctor. So all of his stuff is biochemistry. Chemistry, and then he's an anesthesiologist now. And so, what what the one told me was, he said, uh, "Growing up, what you guys, what you did for us as kids is you gave us a healthy suspicion of professors." Hmm. <laughs> and I thought, well, I wasn't trying to do that. But the reality of it is, I I, I think we need to challenge authority, even the authority of our parents. In the end, if we're going to call ours, look, if our kids aren't Christians, that's different. But if they identify as Christ followers then it seems to me they ought to ground their worldview in the teaching of uh, Jesus because that's who they identify with. So so if you're going to hold a view, a political view, a worldview view, any kind of view you hold, uh, you ought to be able to measure that against what the teaching of Jesus is. So I would say, hey, if you're going to make hold a view as a Christian, if you're, not, if you're not a Christ follower, that's different. Then we can have that discussion. But if you are, then it, we need to be able to measure our our claims against the teaching of Jesus. So now what we're doing is we're exegeting scripture and trying to decide which is the best inference from the biblical evidence. And I think that's worth doing. But the reality of it is that we haven't really sometimes even taught our kids how to what the proper hermeneutics are. Like, how do we read scripture to begin with? And if we don't do that, well, then you've seen it. You've seen it in progressive churches all over the world that are, are taking the teaching of Jesus and twisting it. They are adapters. They are they're not followers. They are in some ways redactors, or they are adapting, or they are changing, but they are not following. And following means that I, if there's a, a truth that I don't like, and there's tons of these. Like I grew up in the arts. My bachelor's degree is in fine art. <laughs> I have a weird background. Huh. My master's degree is in architecture. And then I became a cop. 
Oh, wow. So my whole background is in the arts. And there's lots of teaching of scripture that I wish I could change just because the way I grew up was very, very different than the Christian worldview I hold today. Yeah. But if I'm going to identify with the risen Christ, who I know is risen based on the evidence, I, I don't get that choice. I, I, I cannot change the teaching of Jesus. I cannot adapt it so it fits my tastes and preferences. Instead, I have to say, okay, you know what? This is what Jesus teaches. I don't like it, but I'm committed to it. I'm in because I am no longer a gym follower. I'm now, or a culture follower. I am a Jesus follower. And I think that we have to help our, our young people to make that decision because this is going to be incredible. And look, this is not a surprise. It's not a surprise to Jesus. He says it on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when people, right, persecute you, disrespect you, falsely accuse you of all kinds of evil because of me. He says, rejoice and be glad because they treated the prophets the same way. Yeah. And your reward is in heaven, not here. You're not going to get rewarded here. You're going to get rewarded in heaven. Then he goes right into the light of the world and the salt of the earth passages. So clearly we have to help our students to realize that if you adopt this worldview, you will be persecuted and falsely accused of all kinds of evil because of Jesus. That's not an if, that's a when. He says when, yeah. not if. So you're going to have to accept that as a reality. But I would much rather be committed to an inconvenient truth than a convenient lie. Mm. And that's where we are right now with our young people, I think. Yeah, an inconvenient truth than a convenient lie. I like that. All right. I could talk to you all day. I know the listeners could listen all day. And so we need to make sure they know where to get all your resources so we can keep listening and learning. Um, so obviously today we talked about cold case Christianity, but you have several other books and you also have a podcast. So where's the best place for people to go connect to all your resources? Well, just at coldcasechristianity.com. And okay. I tell people all the time, uh, you know, don't spend money on something you can get for free first. And we've done a ton of articles, a thousand pieces of content on coldcasechristianity.com that you can start to dig with. But what we wanted to do for this re-release is provide an amazing bonus package. So here's what we're doing. For anyone who buys the book, we are going to provide you with a 30-session case-making course for free. We've wow. written the uh, curriculum for it, so you can download the PDF files and 30 videos that take about 10 and a half hours of total content that will take you all the way from does truth exist to does God exist? Is the Bible reliable? Did Jesus really rise from the grave? Is he really the person he said he was? All of that over 30 sessions, that's all available for free. Because what we, we I really think that, that we have created this weird thing that doesn't even exist on the pages of the new. I'm a, what's identified as a Christian apologist. I think it's a stupid term. <laughs> I think it's actually a, a term that shouldn't exist. You don't find it on the pages. There are pastors described in the new Testament. There are evangelists described. It turns out the Christian apologist, that's a term that's applied the defense of the, of the Christian worldview. It's in first Peter three, and it's not given as a special role. It's given as the duty for every breathing Christian. So we've taken this thing that we're supposed to all do, and we've created an industry of Christian apologists. Well, here's my hope. And I understand why we need this, because no one seems to embrace this as their duty. But what we really need is for everyone to embrace it as their duty and to put Christian apologetics as an industry out of business. It shouldn't exist. Every Christian should be able, we don't need another million dollar apologist. We need a million one dollar apologist. 
And that's what we try to do with that case makers course is, hey, can we get you up to par so that you become the authority that your kids go to when they have a question about this? You don't point them to us. Yeah. You don't point them to Jim Wallace. Instead, you point them to you because you've already mastered this topic. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to do with that curriculum. So I hope is, and that's available on our website at coldcasechristianity.com. If you want to get right to that page directly, that's at coldcasechristianitybook.com. But either way, I mean, that's something we just want to make sure we get out to people. It's free, it's downloadable, and all you have to do is purchase and review the book and you're good to go. Perfect. I am going to do it. You have convicted me. I'm going to study up on this and be able to answer her questions myself. So, <laughs> Well, I'm yeah. glad to hear that. That's yeah. really I think, the goal for all of us. And I yeah. really appreciate you having me on your podcast. Yeah. yeah. Thank you again for taking time and just for the work that you do. I'm excited for the listeners to get to meet you and get their hands on all your resources. Thanks again for having me, Rachel. I appreciate it. It's time for Let's Get Real Practical. This is the part of the show where we take the topic discussed with today's guest and we get into some practical steps you can implement into your life right now. You know, one of the things that challenged me in this episode with Jay Warner and in reading his book, Cold Case Christianity, I highly suggest you grab a copy of that book. You go to their website. You take advantage of all the resources they have because he has done the work to investigate Christianity. And then he even teaches us how to do the same. But let me tell you why I was challenged on this is because I definitely would consider myself as somebody who came to the know the Lord experientially, right? You know, him and I uh, a little bit talked about that today, but that's something I want to just dive just a tad bit deeper in with you here. And that difference between experiential and evidential, and obviously what Jay Warner, his work is committed to that evidential piece. And so I want to challenge you. This is our practical piece for today. Lean in to whichever form of connecting or, or knowing and believing in God that makes you a little uncomfortable. Let me give you some examples. Have you experienced God? Look for evidence of him. Grab a copy of this book and learn the facts behind Christianity, Christ, right? Spoiler alert, actually, in two weeks from today, if you're listening to this the day that it released, I am also bringing on Lee Strobel, who is the author of The Case for Christ. And this time we're talking about his newest book, Is God Real? I'm just dedicating this month to these men who have done this work to really dig deep and make a case for Christ, for Christianity, and really help us not just, I, I loved how Jay Warner said he wants to work himself out of a job. I loved that because he's going, I want to train other people to be able to defend the faith on a deeper level than just I've experienced God, right? Now, I want to flip this script for a second with you and go, maybe you're listening today and have you collected all the evidence? Maybe you've already read all these books, you've done the research, and you've come to your conclusion to follow Christ because of all the research and the evidence. I want to challenge you to ask to experience God in the Holy Spirit. 
right? That that feeling that, that comes over, kind of like I've shared, I, I think, again, in the upcoming episode that's coming out, I get these two episodes confused because I recorded them back to back. And I'm like, who's did I say this? And I don't remember. But I shared some of my experiences. And even how my in this next episode, you're going to get to hear how I shared how my dad came to the Lord. It was very experiential. So let's wrap this all up and just say, if you listened to this whole episode today, it means you have a hunger for faith. You're maybe either questioning, is it even real? Maybe you're brought up in church and you've believed it just because that's what you were told to believe, right? Maybe you've seen other people dive into the faith and you're like, huh, they seem to have a piece that I'm, I'm very curious about. Maybe you're walking through a season of life that is, is not, it's a rocky season and it's challenging your faith. I want to encourage you that you tuned in for a reason. And in fact, maybe you're having an experience with the Lord right now. He's speaking to you as you're driving down the road, as you're doing dishes, whatever you're doing right now, the Lord is speaking to you and you're experiencing him. That's a beautiful thing. And I just want to encourage you to go even deeper. I know I was challenged, like I said, when I interviewed these men to really be able to defend my faith. Uh, now, of course, people can't argue with the word of our testimony, which is what's so great about experiences. You can't argue with the word of my testimony. However, how much more powerful do we become when we can say, hey, I have this really amazing testimony that only God could have done in my life. I've experienced him. I felt his presence. Oh, and also, I also can back it up with evidence. I also can defend why it's the gospel is truth, okay? So again, go grab a copy of this book, Cold Case Christianity. You're going to love it. I even enjoyed getting to share some of it with my family as I was reading through. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for every single person who is sitting under the sound of my voice. Lord, we believe in you. We believe, Jesus, that you died for our sins, that you rose again. We believe, Jesus, that you sent us the Holy Spirit to be our helper, our friend, our comforter, and we just receive you today. And if there's anyone listening today that they go, uh, yeah, Rachel, I don't believe all those things. Father, would you draw near to them? Would you show them how real you are and how much you care about their individual life, how much you see them, you know them, you've called them by name. Help us to be able to defend our faith when that time arises. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, hey, friends, if you've never left a review for this show, would you do that today? I love reading those, but it also just helps other people find the show. I pray this Real Talk episode brought you one step closer to living free and pursuing your God-given dreams. I will see you back here next time on Real Talk with Rachel.